You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. Andrew, so I'm super excited to get a lathe update. Well, we do not have a lathe on the floor yet, but we're actively working on it. So I've been doing the financing. We went and checked the lathe out. The lathe looks awesome. I'm super excited about it. We are figuring out what remaining tooling we might need to add for the things we want to do initially because it's coming with some tooling, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily everything that we want initially. And mm-hmm. we are lining up our first couple projects to put on that lathe. It's going to be some basic aluminum parts that we're making for ourselves. And then also looking at locking in a couple of job shop jobs that we had been talking to other companies about for months and were interested. They were interested in using us, but we didn't have a machine with the capacity to do what they needed. So mm-hmm. we're figuring out whether or not any of those jobs are still actionable, whether the timelines sync up and whether or not we can take some of that work on Even if it just takes up some of the available spindle time, Mm -hmm. it would be a great starter. Get the pedals moving, get the bike going fast enough to stay upright. But we are shooting to have the lathe in the shop installed by the end of January is the goal. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I think it's very rare to have a new machine come online and then it instantly be at 100% capacity. So yeah, easing into that. Yeah, 100% capacity isn't even necessarily really the goal. No, even in an established shop, like you kind of don't want your machines at 100% capacity. You do need margin. So what are some things you need that margin for? Because we have been running into an overall labor capacity issue. We're in the process of hiring several more people. That's its whole own story, which we can get into later. But Mm -hmm. I've been finding that we have essentially been running our available staff Mm -hmm. at close to 100% production, which means there's no downtime. There has been very little time available for training Mm -hmm. or for larger improvement projects recently. We're just busy making stuff because we have demand, which is great. We're not making stuff to pile it up in inventory. We have Mm -hmm. demand orders need to go out the door, but we have not had any breathing room Yeah, and that feels bad all the time. So if you've got capacity on a production machine, what is that... What does that bit, that margin of unused capacity buy you? Well, let me just hit the obvious thing. When a machine is down that, well, for example, we have a status boards and you can put a machine down for maintenance. That's the obvious one. You don't need a degree or experience in manufacturing to know that if your machines can run 90% of the time and 10% dedicated to to maintenance, that's one thing. Practically speaking, like you want to get stuff to settle in your coolant tank. Just when it's always being churned up, there's going to be particulates that are in suspension. It's just allowing them to settle. Also draining them, you get like overnight drainage. You, it, what happens there is you get stuff stuck to the inside. So that's just the practical part of it. But for me, if use, we're running- Do you use uh, anything like a Freddy or any kind of sump filter pump? We sure do. Yeah. We have an Aries, E-R-I-E-Z sump pump. It turns the worst job in the shop into a under five minute process of sucking out all the coolant, filtering it, holding it so that you could scrape out the sludge that's settled. And then pumping it and, back. And then pump clean coolant back in. Yeah. But no, my whole thing is like, look outside the box. So when that machine time is down, that's someone that's not running it. And if you can stack those downtimes together, you have opportunity for your employees to do things besides running machines. 
for us, morning meetings would be obvious. Like no one's running machines at that time, but you hear machines running in the background. All of our lathes are essentially running our, what would it be? Our horizontal would be running. A lot of times we'll do long runs on our vacuum chucks. So op one, op two in the same machine. So op one will be one face, op two will be a second face on a vacuum chuck. That machine is always running. That's probably a three to four minute cycle change over time. Yeah, but to have machines down, that that's building in margin. It's like saying like, hey, you come to work and you're here for eight hours and you should be working for exactly eight hours. No, we're human. We need just a little bit of a few breaks here and there to recharge. So it's really having less than 100% machine uptime is not for the benefit of the machine. The machine doesn't care, but it's yeah. more so for the culture and the operators themselves. But it's interesting that one of the things you mentioned is related to quality and process reliability, even basic things like having the ability to let fines settle in your coolant so you can filter them out yeah. is a thing I wouldn't necessarily have thought of. But as you were talking, the, thinking about capacity, I was thinking about the car I drive now versus the previous car I owned. Mm-hmm. So my previous car was a 2014 Honda Civic, and it essentially had rubber bands for an engine. Like It, it had almost no pickup. And there were times when you're going the speed limit and you need to get around somebody. Like you're on a three-lane highway, you're on the interstate up by Indy, and you just you need to move. You need to change position on the road. You need to change lanes, pick up speed, get around a semi, whatever. And that car just did not have much extra get up and go on tap. You could mm-hmm. mash the pedal, but there's not a lot there. And mm-hmm. compared to my current car, which is an Audi TT. It is a night and day difference. If I'm on an on-ramp, I need to merge at highway speed or I'm on the highway and I need to change lanes and get around somebody. That car has tons of power comparatively, mm-hmm. instantly on tap, and it totally changed the way that I drive. I mm. don't have to be like, oh no, let me hope I can get around here, mash it down, come on, come on, come on, come on, yeah. come on. I just go, oh, I'm merging. The gap that I want to get in is three cars ahead of me. I'm just going to zoom up and get in it yeah. easily. No right. stress, just I've got that extra capacity on tap and I don't use it that often, but uh-huh. every time I use it, I care about the difference of having it. Yeah, that's when it matters. Yeah. How'd that tie in? You, I feel like you tangent. It was the need some margin, need some space. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Underutilized capacity. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, obviously if I'm commuting in a Ferrari through school zones to go to the grocery store and I'm daily driving a Ferrari and I never take it out of any neighborhood that has a 30 mile an hour speed limit. Uh That's absurd. It's useless. It's a huge waste. That would be me buying a million dollar CNC machine and then running it at 10% capacity. Right. But certainly we have never been at a point in our company since when I had only one CNC machine in 2015 and 2016, Mm -hmm. I often had that machine busy almost all the time. Mm-hmm. Once we added a second vertical and I could schedule jobs side by side and do prototyping alongside production, that just took the pressure on the whole system down. And now that we've got five verticals, we haven't been at, in recent memory at any time in a position where any one machine was at capacity and jobs were waiting. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, that's the goal is... Y- Yeah, everyone looks at like these dashboards and I looked at a few dashboard systems and we had developed our own like machining dashboard that didn't get, uh, I'm none of them worked, none of the out of the 
box off the shelf solutions worked because they convey the message that 100% machine uptime is the goal. That's how you know you're making money. But my perspective is if you have machinery that's always running for eight, eight plus hours in an eight hour shift, you need another machine because it's just not practical. Because if one of those machines came offline, you're screwed. And we've had machines that have gone down and we're like, oh, great. Now we have to change everything. And then you want to know how much you want to change. If you have five machines, each machine it carries 20% of the workload. Now, if one goes offline, now each machine need, needs to take on an extra 5%. Where's that 5% going to come from if they're all at 100% capacity? It doesn't. Then it gets rolled over into OT. If your people are willing to work we'll overtime, with like, yeah, which we don't do because we focus on the person first. So I'd rather have a machine with like excess capacity online. But hey, let's go back to it. You said that the machine is coming with tooling. The lathe comes with tooling. What brand? Most of the tooling that's with it is Kenna Metal. Okay. You should find out if it has a certificate because it's, how old is the machine? Months old, right? The machine was installed at the other shop in August of 2023. Okay. It'd be curious. It hasn't, it hasn't been run in production yet. So most of the tooling is all boxed up in a work cart. It's not even put in the machine yet. Yeah. No, you might want to, here's a hack. Like whenever we get a new machine, we typically get a, a certificate, a tooling certificate. And I think it entitles you to about 50% off. And we just, it's like candy store time. We run around and we're like, okay, <laughs> what other mills need inserts, th those types of things? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's all Kenna Metal tooling. We've only had a handful of times where the Kenna Metal rep is like, yeah, dude, no, you can't get that boring head for your lathe. Come on. You, this lathe doesn't have live tooling if that were the case, but we've been shut down that way. But it's like, hey, is this a tooling certificate or not? We're going to use it. But no, I'd wonder if, I don't know of any, I've never heard of a machine being bought and then resold within the life of its initial certificate. But I'd be curious to know if it does transfer. And if so, party we time. We specifically checked in on the like one-year warranty and there was some unused training time oh. that was included in the machine package and neither of those are transferable. Oh, interesting. Is this an and Ellison so decision? It is a, it's an Ellison policy, apparently, okay. Okay. which I understand. It is what it is. And yeah. The advantage of buying a very, very lightly, practically unused machine, we're getting enough savings on the machine itself that if we have to pay out of pocket for training, that'll be okay. That's good. It's not point. the end of the world. Yeah. So but, Ellison actually, or Doosan or Ellison, one of them has a pretty decent YouTube channel. And actually, hats off to Titan. He's got some content that when we got our big MX machine, we were watching Titan's content because, and it wasn't like super in depth, it was more like overview. But it's mm -hmm. like we would we would pause it often. Go wait, what button did he just push? What menu is that? Because there has been, although it's a, a finite control, there has been a lot of changes. Like I have four Dusons, and they're on average probably two years apart, two to three years apart. And every machine still has a finite control, but they're all different, and the user interface the UI is different as well. Yeah, this is what we noticed when we went and looked at the machine. I took Chris, who's our lead programmer machinist, with me. And he has time on Fanuc control machines, but this was a new user interface that he had not used before. And he goes, okay, I, I can understand the basics of how this works. A lot of the individual layout of these screens and where things are is different. Mm -hmm. And yep. so he said immediately, it would be worth the time for us to get a day or two of dedicated training on this specific machine once it's on our floor 
to make sure that we know the best practices for all the things in here. Because conceptually, mm-hmm. Fanic is comprehensible to him. To me, it's kind of a black box. And honestly, yeah. I don't intend to become an expert in running this lathe myself. Mm-hmm. I don't have any interest in it. I'm not particularly interested in running lathes. And I don't think it's the best use of my time to become competent enough to program new work on this machine. I want to be mm-hmm. competent enough to operate it. I want to be competent enough to know, to understand the setups, to understand the tooling offsets, to understand how the code works between the two spindles. I want to understand how it works, but I don't need to be able to create a new workflow for a brand new part and ideate all that stuff. Right. You know what? I would even push back on that. Ask yourself, why do you need to know? Well, part of it is... Redundancy? Just my... Part of it is redundancy. The basics, like I want to know how to power the machine up, power the machine down, safely Mm -hmm. park it, home it, touch off tools, and do the basic stuff that has to happen. If a job is running and there's a problem, I want to know how to address it. Mm, Yeah. I don't intend to stand at that machine a bunch and be an operator. Although Mm -hmm. certainly, just to get familiarized enough with it, I will probably spend some time watching it run once it's set up. Sure. I want to make sure I understand how to operate the bar feeder, load the bar feeder, set up the bar feeder, change out the Royal Collet system, make sure all that stuff works. I want to be able to understand how those basic parts and pieces function, but I mm-hmm. do not need to be the fastest setup guy on that machine in the shop. Mm-hmm. I just need to know enough to be functional. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So we had, let's see, we would have had, yeah, two Dusons, which were just fine as of 2020. And at that time, we bought a, a Haas lathe, which we ended up selling, I think, like 18 or 20 months later. But that was one thing that I thought, well, I don't want to know lathes. I have a capable staff of at least three guys that can turn on, operate a lathe, and turn it off at the end of the day. So there's redundancy there. But just me as the owner, like I call it owner's privilege. I just wanted to mm-hmm. jump in and learn a lathe and specifically a Haas lathe because it was familiar to the Haas controls. And yeah, we have every right to do that. But yeah, strategically, it was a terrible use of my time. It's not uh, what I should be focused on. And especially Matt, now, gonna, now that we've sold push it. Back. I'm going to push back on that. Okay. As an owner... Doing things that maintain your curiosity and interest and give you some variation in your daily workload are strategically valuable. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. I like, like, I really like John Saunders' concept of days off in the shop, and I use uh-huh. that. I'm, mm-hmm. Today's a Saturday, we're recording. I have a mm-hmm. day off in the shop. I'm mm-hmm. here by myself. The air system is down, all the machines are off. I am rearranging my office and cleaning stuff up, batting cleanup in our ERP on some jobs. I'm handling a couple customer service tickets. And then I'm just playing around in CAD. I'm 3D printing some things and I'm scratching the itch of stuff that I don't have time for during the normal Monday to Friday week. And that itself, whether it produces any additional dollars to the bottom line, is fundamentally useful to me as an owner-operator and uh-huh. I don't have to justify it any more than that. 
Okay, so I would say that it is to a point. It gets too you, much. Then. No, no. Fundamentally, it's what was the? It's useful. You are putting in time that has a utility in the company. I would say I would put it in two categories. Is it life giving or is it life draining? Obviously, you come in and you do the things you like. Yes. Sometimes I do the things that really suck that nobody else wants to do. Yep. And that is the night and day, the yin and yang of being the owner is yeah. you get to choose sometimes the cream of the crop of jobs you really want to do. Mm-hmm. And you also are the person with whom every buck finally stops. Sure. And if sure. something needs to get done and you don't have a good process for it yet, or it's just a grind, if push comes to shove, you're the one who has to finish it if it has to get done. Mm-hmm. And I don't work overtime. Yeah. I'm not getting time and a half. To be here mm-hmm. on Saturdays. I'm the owner. It's my company. If it needs to get done, it needs to get done. Yeah. But yeah. doing things that feed my curiosity and my interest that help me enjoy doing the work, super valuable. You know what I think it is, Andrew? It's like we're saying the same thing, but if you had a garage workshop attached to your house on Saturday mornings, you'd go into there. It just so happens that our garage workshops are our companies in which we both enjoy being at. And so we're going to head into the shop on a Saturday. It's not a wood shop in the garage. It's a metal and plastic fabrication facility a few miles down the road. So yeah, I would say, is it life giving or is it life draining? Yeah. Yeah. This is a, let me make a point here. It's semantics. I know I love John Saunders' idea of days off in the shop. For me, at least in the position that I try and point myself towards these days is it's I would call it days on outside of the shop to kind of pursue the entrepreneurial stuff, the vision casting, the things that I just want to work on. But it's still, John is doing the stuff in the shop that is life-giving. I do stuff outside of the shop that is entrepreneurial and life-giving. It's the same approach. That's what we should be doing as owners. So I don't do a lot of work outside the shop. And for me, there's a distinction between work I can do outside the shop and work that has to be done at the shop. If Mm -hmm. I have a book that I want to read, I can do that outside the shop. There's no reason I have to be at the shop to do that. Although I have a super comfy recliner in my office, I can sit in that recliner and read books. Totally Mm -hmm. fine. But I don't need to commute to the shop to read that book. A lot of the things that I want to play around with and just learn more about by doing are things I have to do at the shop because they rely on equipment that's at the shop. Yep. And- Personally, I find the more general theoretical entrepreneurial stuff that can happen anywhere, I find that way less interesting. I have a Mm. really hard time getting motivated to go do brain-only work. Mm -hmm. And, And part of that is there is this very real distinction. We think and act differently in different environments. This is why... I have some exercise equipment in my garage. I don't have a shop in my garage, but I've got some exercise equipment. And it is, I find it way harder to get out there and actually do a hard workout than if I go to my jujitsu gym and just train hard for an hour and a half. Because Mm -hmm. changing the context and the environment fundamentally changes my priorities and my focus and what I'm thinking about. Yes. And even if I'm just reading a book... There are times when coming to work and reading a book in my office when I could just as easily sit in a chair at home and read that book Mm -hmm. totally changes how I interact with that book. And speaking of books, 
found a great one this past week. I was at uh, Bloomington has a half price books outlet, not a normal half price bookstore, but a half price bookstore where all the bulk weird stuff that other half price bookstores don't want all get shuttled to this one location and they just put it in very, very general categories on shelves and the books are all cheap. So it's pretty typical to find books for two to five dollars. And I got a hardbound copy of Kiyoshi Suzaki's The New Manufacturing Challenge, Techniques for Continuous Improvement. Mm. And I was just looking generally through shelves and shelves of random business books, most of which is absolute schlock. It's mm-hmm. just it's just garbage. Yeah. <laughs> most of it is repackaged rubbish. But mm-hmm. I ran across this hardbound copy of a Japanese book on lean manufacturing for four dollars. Wait, wait, wait. Anybody it's, else? It's not a Japanese else. book, right? It's not in well, no. Japanese. Well, a, a book by it's not an it's not an American amateur regurgitating stuff Got that it. he learned. It's from the it source. Is, it's yeah. legit. And it Okay. When, the minute I picked it up instantly and I looked at it and I started reading, and I probably read the first first 40 pages just standing there in, in the bookstore. Uh-huh. And it reminds me a lot of Shigeo Shingo's single minute exchange of dyes, the SMED system book, mm-hmm. which I found incredibly useful and practical, not because all the individual things that he discussed were necessarily immediately applicable, but because the nuts and bolts of looking at essentially case studies and saying this kind of facility using these kinds of machines to make these kinds of products was encountering these specific problems and applying the principles from the first part of the book, we focused on this and this first, made these changes and saw these results. Mm -hmm. And so as I was reading through this Suzaki book, there was a section on inventory waste and the way that inventory waste masks, especially excess inventory, Mm -hmm. masks other problems in the business. And so they had Mm -hmm. a diagram and it shows a lake with a boat sailing on the water and under the water are all these rocks, but you don't see them because the water covers them. And the rocks underneath the surface are poor scheduling, machine breakdowns, quality problems, transportation, vendor delivery issues, line imbalances, long setup times, communication problems internally, employee absenteeism, and all those problems can be masked by having excess inventory on the shelf. If Mm -hmm. you've got 10,000 units on the shelf, the fact that you have major scheduling and downtime problems right now, you don't feel the pain of it because you're shipping from the inventory. You're not Mm -hmm. shipping from this week's production. And so at the end of 2023, we always do an end of year inventory. We take a company-wide, building-wide stock of all the raw materials, partially finished goods, and finished goods we have. And I was actually shocked at how much we had. I had a rough idea in my mind. I had a guesstimate, and my guesstimate was wrong. Mm. My guesstimate was wrong by a significant margin. And what I had known we had a few things that we had significant excess inventory of, and these were all finished goods purchased from outside vendors where when we took over fulfillment operations for one of our main OEM clients early last year, we were required as part of that whole deal to take over blanket POs for these finished goods that Mm -hmm. the previous distributor had placed. 
And so we ended up having to step into and assume the obligation of inventory estimates that had been made by a completely different company that we had no say in. And with just a couple of products, we ended up with over $200,000 of excess inventory on the shelf by the end of 2023. Mm. And that, while I knew it was happening, actually putting numbers to it, hard numbers, like as of December 28th, this is how much of this thing we have on the shelf. And now that we've got nine months of sales data, we can look at that and say, and that is enough inventory to cover the next X number of months of sales. We are overstocked this far into the future. Mm. That was really alarming. And for a company our size, we're not that big. Yeah. $200,000 of excess inventory. Well, let me ask you that. Salaries for multiple people. It's a whole yeah. new CNC machine. It's significant investments in improving our facility. That's a lot of money to have just tied up in stuff. But why? Uh, okay, that's inventory you took on, right? You didn't overproduce. No, that's that was all finished goods inventory that we were contractually obligated to buy on a monthly schedule. Oh, I see. Okay. So it was someone else's waste that you were contractually obligated to bring into the facility. It was somebody else's inaccurate estimation mm-hmm. that we were required to assume and yeah. pay for and warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. That's the difference between pull and push manufacturing. They're, they're, it's they have 100% push. push. Yeah. We had a yeah. whole bunch of stuff get pushed onto our pallet racks. Right. And in both cases, I had the advantage of, because of the way that our OEM arrangement works, to go to our end client Mm -hmm. for whom those products are ultimately being produced and let them know in November and December, hey guys, we're seeing significant overstock throughout the fall on these products and we want to discontinue purchasing them. Mm -hmm. And in all the involved cases and for all the specific SKUs in question, they were very flexible and said, obviously, yes, we do not want to create cash flow and inventory problems for you. We're going to discontinue ordering those parts mm-hmm. from the company that currently produces them. And what we're probably going to end up doing is replacing those parts with things that we produce. So either updated versions, alternate products, other things, but we have months and months and months of inventory of all those SKUs. And so we don't even need to solve that problem right now. Break it down. I don't understand. Like, are these raw components like clips, nylon, whatever? What is it? No, these are finished laser cut, sewn or stamped goods that we, we buy them. We still have to package them. So they're not in retail packaging. They're purchased in bulk. We have them on the shelf. As we sell them, Mm -hmm. we take labels and bags and warranty cards and things. We package it all together, put it on our shelf, and then we ship it to retail clients. I see. Okay. But we had to buy a certain number of units every month. Mm -hmm. And every month we were selling fewer units than we were buying. So Mm -hmm. every month the backlog was marginally increasing till by the end of the year, we had months and months and months of inventory just stuck on a pallet Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Makes sense. Wow. And so that really motivated me 
to do more looking ahead for those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Obviously, this was kind of a one-off case. This was a major business move for us to in-house retail fulfillment for this bait for this one client and to as part of that deal have to manage the transition of all the inventory they'd already committed to. Mm-hmm. We have the advantage of no longer having to moving forward take on risks that somebody else signed us up for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have geez. way more say about what the inventory volumes are going to be. And yeah. for everything that we make for that client, our inventory volumes have actually been too low recently, which mm-hmm. is we got a big sales spike in November. And I've mentioned this before. It stayed busy through December. We were closed for the week between Christmas and New Year's. And normally we see a sharp sales slump there. People mm-hmm. are spending their money on other things. And this year, we did not see the slump. Mm. So we came in on January 2nd and we had a significant number of orders to clear from that week. <laughs> and we've cleared almost all of them, not 100% of them, but we cleared almost all of them in the first week of January. But in most cases, we didn't have enough inventory on shelf of almost any SKU to cover all those orders. So we had to be producing small batches during that week to ship immediately to cover those orders. Mm. And that doesn't make me want to suddenly triple up our on-shelf inventory, but it does make me want to reevaluate the hierarchy of the highest selling products and make more shelf space for them so that instead of the standard shelf size, standard shelf space for products in this category, allowing us to rack 40 units. I want to reallocate shelf space so that we can rack 80 units mm-hmm. of that thing. Yeah. Not because on any given day we're selling 80, but I use the analogy of drinking from a Dixie cup. Anybody who's ever been thirsty and had one of those little tiny cardboard, like ounce and a half, 1980s Dixie cups, you stand there in the bathroom, you fill it up, you take a drink. You fill it up, mm-hmm. you take a drink. You fill it up, you take a drink. And like 10 Dixie cups later, you had enough water to be done. I don't want our batch sizes to be Dixie cup sized because Mm -hmm. even though we've worked really hard on setup and changeover time reduction and our changeovers at our CNC machines to produce the parts are very, very fast, there is just, there is extra irreducible work involved in constantly task switching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially if you have outside services that need to process something, I don't think you do, but for us- For most of those parts, it's 100% internal. And so Uh we can go all the way from raw unprocessed materials to finished packaged goods on the shelf Mm -hmm. with nothing having to ship out or come back. Yeah. But even there, just the extra communication involved in channel surfing that quick between jobs creates opportunities for problems. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, we're, it's overproduction at its finest. And, it, and then you have excess inventory and then that buries it per that book. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's really it, for the things that we need, that we don't have enough inventory of, if we make them in too small a batches, by the time we finish today's batch, we're already backordered again mm-hmm. tomorrow. And I would rather than like stutter stepping with our feet six inches apart, I mean, it's like trying to run with your feet really close together. I want to be able to get into a stride where even our top selling SKUs that we have to refresh often, we're at most running a batch for those once a week, Mm. not Uh, running a batch for them every day. Are you attaching Kanban cards to the bins that these products 
live in? So this is a thing we've been messing around with. Currently, no, we don't have any Kanban cards. We phased out physical Kanban cards when we moved to a digital ERP system with the goal being to have the ERP system warn us when we get below our scheduled minimums to build Kanbans into the ERP system. The problem that we found is, boy, this is a complicated thing to explain, or at least to, to sort out how the problem works. One of the basic problems is we have a lot of shared subcomponents. We have a lot of ingredients that can branch into multiple other products. Mm -hmm. And so inventorying the partially assembled subcomponents has been a real challenge because the system doesn't always accurately warn us how many of the individual subcomponents we're going to need to meet scheduled production in time for us to have all those made before we need the finished product assembled. Mm -hmm. And so we've had this consistent issue of there being information breakdowns where it's kind of like being a burger shop and we have suddenly an order for 60 Big Macs and we've got 60 buns available, but we only have 20 patties on the grill. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, we've got all the wrappers, we've got the bags, we've got all the French fries we need, we've got the buns, but we didn't have enough patties grilled in time and those take time to produce and now everything has to wait while we make that one subcomponent that mm -hmm. once it's ready, then we can build the final assembly, package the product and get it out the door to the customer. And so the multiple layers deep, primary products, consuming subcomponents that in some cases themselves consume subcomponents has made it hard for us to use the digital ERP mm -hmm. to accurately allocate labor to building those base level small subcomponents in adequate quantities at the right time. Yeah, that is- And because we don't have excess labor available, if we misallocate at all, we don't end up with excess inventory, we end up with inadequate inventory. Yeah. So so is it a, without mentioning your ERP, because what I'm going to ask might throw them on oh, no, the bus. No, it's fine. Is, Our ERP is, is fulcrum and I'm okay. generally very happy with it. There are certain things about it that I really struggle with and there are certain conceptual things that are built into it that consistently don't align with how I and how our employees think about our work. Okay. Which just okay. means there are certain places where we always are out of step with how the ERP wants to process information. Well, okay. So does it not have capability of like creating like subgroups of a bomb where you can keep these common components in an assembly? The basic difficulty is if you want to build jobs for subcomponents that can be shared across multiple finished products and you want to build those subcomponents ahead of time so that they're available to simply be picked, then mm -hmm. those subcomponents have to be built without being allocated to any specific job. Right. Mm -hmm. If you want to build those subcomponents specifically to order for an individual job, and they have to be built vertically into a stack of a complete bomb that goes all the way from the smallest subcomponents up to the finished product, mm -hmm. then you have a whole different challenge where the system often wants to automatically prioritize things in an order that doesn't match physical reality of production. Mm -hmm. So an example would be at the end, we have a product where we have a finished assembled holster and it has multiple 
individual hardware kit components that have to be added together with it at the very end at final packaging. So it, it doesn't manage the convergence of multiple items mm-hmm. in real time well. It yep. always wants to look at things in a very strictly linear way, which is if we need to make this job for this finished component, it wants us to build the hardware kits first. And it doesn't want to let us work on the other operations. We have to override things to force the other operations to be active. Mm-hmm. When the reality is we have five parallel things, all feeding parts to the final assembly, but those five parallel things are not interdependent in any way. We don't mm-hmm. have to have the hardware kits built before the guy running the CNC machine can start making the shell components. And the second shell components start being made, they can flow through to buffing. Buffing doesn't have to wait to process shells until packaging has finished building bags. And so there's this interdependence problem where Mm -hmm. what we end up doing to work around that prioritization issue is we try to inventory those shared subcomponents ahead of time. Yeah. But then we're building predictively inventory of those little bits and pieces. It's like the, it's the ketchup packets. How mm-hmm. many ketchup packets are we going to need for all of today's French fry orders? We don't know, but we can estimate. But we don't have to have ketchup packets ready to go before the guy building the Big Macs starts making the Big Macs. Mm-hmm. Because we only need the ketchup packets at the very end when we're putting everything in the back. It shouldn't be. Somebody placed an order for a Big Mac and French fries. Don't start the fryer and don't start the grill until the ketchup packets are made. It's like, mm-hmm. no, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so there's a prioritization problem. And we've tried rearranging our bombs a number of different ways. And every single rearrangement solves some problems and creates other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this is one of those things, and I'm sure if you had a sit down and a deep dive with the Fulcrum team, they could like hook it up where it works for your workflow. Because my perspective is that technology f- should work for us, not against us. Another phrase we say around here is technology should never be the bottleneck. If my guy says, man, my computer's just so slow, well, let's clean it up. If that doesn't help, oh, well, I guess Fusion is running a new version that's more processor intensive. Well, we're buying new computers. A few of the guys- We need more we processing just, power. Yeah, exactly. And so we've done that. So that's one of the things that I think has caused hesitation with me because a lot of the ERPs, especially the -the out-of-the-box ones, you have to work in the manner in which they work, which is fine. It's to be expected unless you have custom-written software. And so for us, one of the things that we're solving is, well, there's going back to a lean methodology, there's the three-bin system in which the first bin is the bin you're actually pulling from and you're working from and you're building things. The second bin is fully stocked, ready to go. And the third bin is either actually at the supplier or figuratively at the supplier or the source of supply so that it's being resupplied. So there's always work being done out of two out of the three bins. And so for us, we had extruded bar stock that are the same dimensions and we cut different lengths for different components. And so I think one of the problems that we had, like take for example, our pro pallet system pallets, we have eight inch and 10 inch wide pallets. But out of Mm -hmm. a bar, we cut 12 or 16 inch long pallets. So what was happening is we would run out of 10 by 12s. So we would pull the Kanban 
material would be ordered, but then we were realizing that we had plenty of material on hand. It just had been allocated or left over from a run of 10 by 16 inch pallets. So we said, okay, well, what we need is a cascade, like different tiers of Kanban cards along the way. So when we hit a Kanban card, which to those listening, Kanban is just a Japanese word for signal. It signals action needs to be taken. So when we hit a Kanban card, the scan would actually go to like the saw operator to prep more material to be put in the machine. So that would go to our saw operator with either Kyle or Juan. They would start to saw the blanks when they get to the minimum. Then they would go, oh, we ran out of material. Now we need more material. And then they would hit a secondary Kanban, which would then order more material. So our Kanban systems, they're working both internally and externally. That's how we got around that. And it's problematic because I don't think ERPs are in general, they want to know exact numbers. They want to know who's working on what, in my opinion, is too invasive and it's too disruptive. And that's why the Kanban system, a tiered Kanban system, it's been a solution where it's gotten to the point where I go, yeah, we don't need an ERP. What problem are we solving with a dedicated digital ERP rather than a paper ERP, basically a Kanban system? Ideally, the ERP should allow you to centralize information and keep it at your fingertips because there are certain kinds of information that a paper ERP, a Kanban card system does not capture. Mm -hmm. And one of the fundamental ones that it doesn't capture at all is labor costs. A Kanban system for me personally, we did individual physical Kanban cards for years. And Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things about that system I love. (laughs) It's analog, it's direct, it's very clear cut. The actions are clearly defined. The problem is it only gives me a picture of part of the business. Mm -hmm. And the same way that I want to have a clearer idea, the saying, what gets measured gets managed, is true in business. It's the same reason that in competitive shooting or in defensive training for shooting, we use shot timers, not because speed is the ultimate factor in success, but because in order to be able to assess progress, you have to have some kind of quantifiable metric to measure against. And so for us, our primary goal in moving to a digital ERP was to be able to have historical data on all of our inventory consumption. Because the other thing a Kanban system doesn't give you is the ability to look back and say, how many of this thing have we used in the past 90 days, Mm -hmm. in the past six months, in the past 18 months? And how is our usage of this or that component trending? Up, down, level, what? And there were tons of places across our company where we simply had no data. Mm -hmm. Even if we had used physical Kanban cards successfully to avoid out-of-stock statuses on certain things, looking back and saying, how many of that have we used required digging into my emails and finding every email that I'd sent to that vendor to order those things and then either adding them to a spreadsheet or just tabbing them up on paper to figure out How many thousands of that thing have we ordered in the past year and a half? And even then, I'm never certain 100% that I caught every email. There's always this ambiguity of, did I get all the information? And so we wanted to be able to actually track what are the employees working on and how long do these jobs take to run? Mm -hmm. Because 
in any company, you have highly profitable jobs, moderately profitable jobs, and you have products and jobs you run that are essentially just treading water or worse, you might be even losing money on them. And if you don't track the labor, you don't actually know. Yeah. But in and defense the of the Kanban, really quick, ahead. in defense of a Kanban system, it's not designed for job costing or tracking. It's a way to signal production. Because for example, yeah, everything you said is true. We had to create digital, like a digital solution. It's not, I wouldn't call it an ERP. It's part of a greater ERP, but where every time a Kanban is scanned, it records it digitally. And then we know every time the scan happens, if whether we buy material, the material cost is this per pound or this per unit. Or if we scan it and we need more vacuum power units to be made, then we know that the true job costing, which was figured out like over a course of years, like my director of finance, Ryan, he connects with Alex, my lead mill guy, or Armando, the lead turn guy, and says, hey, what is the tact time of this component? Great. And he records that. What is the tact time of this component, this component? And then we assume, hey, it takes four minutes to assemble a vacuum power unit, start to finish. And then we record that, and then we can extract that data. Now it's beautiful to have it all in a digital off-the-shelf ERP system. I just haven't found that solution. So yeah, I think over the years I've become so, it sounds weird, but data adverse. If it's data for the purpose of giving me data, I don't want to know about it. I want data to be able to trigger predetermined actions based on, it's basically like data for the sake of the Kanban system. Here's some floating number, which I could care less about, but if it hits the low, it triggers this action. If it hits the high, it triggers this action. Well, I think we should wrap up for today. I completely agree with you that the goal of data is not data. Yeah. The goal of data is insights. And the purpose of those insights is more accurate actions, more timely actions, more decisive actions, more profitable actions. The challenge is my gut is often wrong. My business already has grown to a scale where my ability to estimate by feel what I need to prioritize next Mm -hmm. isn't trustworthy. That's right. That's right. There's too many moving parts. Now, that being said, I still would trust myself more than any other employee. We actually just rearranged how we're doing our prioritization of jobs. And one of the things that we had done was we had a couple of different magnetic whiteboards in different places in the jobs. And we kick off all of our production with a single printed traveler that will go with the parts. And that has a QR code. It allows people to scan into the ERP to find the right job immediately without having to go through any menus or lists and do any scrolling or reading. They just scan the traveler and you are dumped right into the next operation of that job, mm-hmm. which is great. That's a real efficiency and I like it. I don't love that we have to use paper, but that's just the reality of how it works currently. But we had several different whiteboards in different places in the shop so that jobs could kick off in the physical location that made the most sense. The problem, though, was that it was siloing information in certain places. And anytime you have employees that can work in zone A or work in zone B, and zones A and B have separate starting lines for new jobs, Mm -hmm. they have a very hard time prioritizing which of those things needs to come next. And so we picked a central location in the shop that everybody walks through all the time 
and put two full-size magnetic whiteboards there and then columned it out by categories. So we have all those subcomponents. There's a column for those subcomponent jobs. We have a column for back orders. Anytime anything's come in and we didn't have enough inventory in hand on the shelf, those are urgent jobs. They have their own categorization and back order jobs always get run first before anything else on the board gets touched. Mm-hmm. And that already has made it much easier to, at a glance, see all the pending jobs that are scheduled in the system. And yeah. I would trust myself more than any of the other employees to stand in front of those two whiteboards, look at the whole scene, and make the most effective decision about what to do next. Right. But I need to be distributing that information better. I need that to be more decentralized. I need people to be able to more autonomously make the optimal choice for what to focus on next. And every individual employee perceives that board differently because of their skill sets and the zones that they work in. Not every employee is looking at that going, ultimately, what is the big picture top priority for finishing a job today? They're looking at it and going, of the things I know how to do, which of the jobs is most urgent that I can Mm -hmm. take action on? Yeah. That sounds like a great topic for a future podcast. I've given that it a lot of thought. It absolutely would be. That prioritization and scheduling is like, yeah. it's a woolly mammoth and we're trying to eat it one bite at a time. There you the go. problem is we haven't killed the thing yet. So it's running around and I'm running around after it, chasing it with a fork. Mm-hmm. Yep. Love it. Love <laughs> it.